You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics Podcast at secondprintcomics.com. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Okay, I've got one of my favorite Virginia authors on right now, Joel Hensley. You remember him uh, from a way yonder back on the old show, you know, in the before times, before, you know, when the world was stable and things like that. Uh, Joel, you went ahead and posted something on your Facebook a couple of weeks ago that really caught my attention because it's been a it's been a topic that I don't, I don't think it's a controversial topic, but these days everything is controversial. Everything it's, it's, is. It's it's everything. You can't breathe without pissing someone off, and it, it has really to do with this concept of travel. Because right now, with COVID, with the way that things are, with with you know, in, in our country and around the world, it's like travel is now treated as two things. One, it's treated as either a completely selfish action, or two, it's treated as something that's incredibly dangerous. And the thing that I have really seen for myself in the past year and a half of, um, you know, traveling amidst riots, pandemics, and everything else is that I don't think travel is really any of those things. I think that travel is a necessity for people, especially for people who, who need to scratch that itch of going out and experiencing different new things that, you know, they, they wouldn't typically find in their bubble. So what you basically did was you, you were you shared a link to a blog you did like almost a decade ago. Um, explain to us, like, w- what was this trip you went on? Why were you writing about it? And kind of paint the picture of where you were at that point in your life. Yeah. Well, back then, uh, blogs were the thing to do. Uh, that's what everyone was doing back in uh, the good old days of 2010, 2011. Um, I went on this trip in 2011 and uh, I had just gotten a smartphone and I really didn't know how to use it. Uh, so I wasn't uploading stuff to Facebook. I just had an old you know, digital camera that you had to hook up to a USB port in order to download it on your computer and then upload it to your Facebook albums. And, it sounds so uh, prehistoric. It was so prehistoric and it took so long too. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to take a bunch of pictures. I'll upload them when I get home and I'm just going to blog about what I'm doing. So everyone, it was kind of my way. I I did this trip by myself. So it was kind of my way of connecting with people while I was on the road and not having to share the same stories over and over and over with, you know, 50, 50 other people. So this way everybody could kind of keep up with the same story. So when I got home, everyone just kind of knew knew those stories already. So that was uh, my thinking at the time. The reason I took the trip, I actually took a trip when I graduated college, as is the thing to do, to Europe. And when I was in Europe, I talked to a lot of people from around the world, and they asked me questions of, you know, what's Florida like? What's New York like? Because a lot of them have never been to the United States. And well, they think that the United States, you can hit like Vegas, New York City, D.C. and Austin in like an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. They, they seem yeah. to ignore the facts that like it's a giant country. I mean, I remember living in Australia in the, in the early 2000s. People were like, so, do you know, Brad, uh, not Bradley Cooper, who was somebody popular in the early 2000s. Do you know Mel Ben Gibson. Affleck? Mel Gibson? <laughs> Do you know, uh, have you met George Bush? Is he your neighbor? Stuff like that. And it's like, you guys actually think that we're like a small, like Springfield from the Simpsons. Right. Like it's, it's, it's a big country. <laughs> the, the most fascinating thing that someone told me was, oh, America, they're all racist over there, aren't they? And this was 2008. So we're, I was like, well, we're about to elect a, a black president. So I don't think we're <laughs> mostly racist anymore, but um, just the perception of, their perception of us was fascinating. And I actually got to talk to an old 
uh, Brit guy. Long story. I got lost in London and I ended up at this as cabin one does. As one does. It is long story as to how I got lost. I was being stupid, but um, this nice old cabbie guy who was the uh, dispatcher for this, uh, I guess it was like a, a cab service or a taxi service. He let me put my head down and sleep, you know, on his, you know, put my head down on his desk and kind of get a little hours of sleep because I was in a really bad neighborhood. But um, before that, we got to talking. I guess he was kind of making sure I wasn't a, you know, criminal or it was going to rob him. And he was just asking me some questions and he was like, well, that president of yours is kind of an idiot, isn't he? And he was referring <laughs> to George Bush at the time. And uh, so uh, it was fascinating getting their perspectives on us. And and when you're over, I don't know if you've been to the UK. Have you ever been to the UK, Rimzo? No, I, I mean, I, I've been to Australia, Canada, and Iceland. Uh, other than that, I've never made it over like Europe, Asia, or Africa. So Canada and Australia, all parts of the, you know, the British Commonwealth, I wonder if they teach history the same way they do in the UK, but in the UK, the way they teach their students about the American revolution, they call it the American uprising or the, the uh, American rebellion. And so they kind of have a more of a negative spin on it, which I thought was interesting um, and kind of fashioned us to be more of uh, radicals uh, that were kind of being a little, um, we were ungrateful. That, that's yeah. what I remember. It's like, they're ungrateful. They, we, we fight a bunch of wars for them. We deal with the Indians, we leave yep. them alone, and then we need to go ahead and pay off our debt. And what do they do? They trash our tea. That's it, right. It's kind, of, it's kind of like World War II, though, as well, because, like, you know, from an American perspective, um, you know, it's almost as if we won the entire war by ourselves. And when you look at it from everyone else's perspective, it's like, yeah, you know, we did this, we did all this crazy stuff and America came in last minute when basically everyone was either sick, dead or dying. Yep. We so were essentially it's, the Lannisters. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really one of those interesting things where it's like, they're not incorrect, but it's one of those situations where it's like, depending on where you are in the world, context seems to be one of those things that is, is missing from a little bit of each, but I don't think that's anyone's fault. No. And they weren't, you know, too radical about it, but it was just interesting seeing that perspective and never seeing that per perspective before. And with them, it's just embedded in their culture. Like, yeah, the United States, they kind of did us wrong 300 years ago. And, um, but you know, it's okay. Um, things are fine now. And that, that was kind of the, um, their historical interpretation of it, which, which was interesting. Um, and uh, the, another concept I was introduced to, and I know I'm talking more about Europe and I'm supposed to talk about the United States trip, but uh, the, the Europe trip was just fascinating. And it introduced me to the idea of devolution. Um, I guess that's how they pronounce it or de-evolution. Um, but it was a concept of governments getting more closer to the people and becoming less centralized. And so at the time, uh, Scotland had recently just had their in parliament, I think less than 10 years. And so they kept discussing this idea of decentralizing and they actually were talking about it in a very positive light uh and so i thought that was really fascinating that they were actually um you know very positive about the idea of some of their um governments kind of splintering a little bit more and and governing their own local uh affairs and you know it wasn't seen as a negative thing so i thought that was interesting this yeah, was all free you know brexit and all that yeah, I mean, it's it, it's crazy to think how in just a very short amount of time, everything has changed. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm talking globally in, in this idea of, you know, everyone needs to come up with a very similar and uniform solution to how we're doing things. So, I mean, the idea of hearing that, you know, a foreign country even a decade ago was saying, you know, maybe we need to go ahead and just, you know, let the people, you know, pursue more of what they want on a local level you know, thinking about this, you and I, you know, we come from the same school of thought when it comes to politics and stuff like this. It sounds like common sense. And we're happy to hear that. Now you hear it now. And it's like, God, those were some good. Remember the good days when it was just we had to worry about that, you know, that, that old guy, Obama and, you know, wacky George Bush. Things weren't that bad, but it's like eh. that Iraq war. <laughs> yeah, I mean, simple times, simpler times. It really, yeah, it really was. Um and I, I know I sound more like a like an old guy every day when I when I say these kind of kinds of things, but it was a lot simpler <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, even oh, though yeah. it wasn't, but so it's the first time. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
Oh, no, I was just saying compared to nowadays, I mean, nothing is simple. Everything's made complicated. Yeah, I mean, just just for its own sake. So I'm curious, was was this trip to Europe your first time traveling out of the United States? It, it was. I, uh, you know, I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley. I'm just a country boy. I didn't get out a whole lot. Um, and, you know, a lot of my peers had gone on to European trips or, you know, other parts of the country. They'd spent semesters abroad. And um, I've always been one to try to suck all the juices out of life as much as I can and try to at least dip my toe into a lot of different experiences. And so I made it my goal my freshman year. I was like, when I graduate college, I'm I'm saving up now. I'm, I'm going to go to Europe. I'm, I'm going to do it. You're only young once. And uh, I've got a slight adventurous side to me. Um, and so I, I did the Europe trip by myself as well because I couldn't find anybody who uh, was crazy enough to go with me. So I um, took a train. Uh, well, I took a you know plane to get to London. And then I went to Edinburgh. And uh, I took a train you know, to other parts uh, of Europe and uh, was out there for a month. I had to cut that trip a little short because I ended up getting employment. So I had to come back home early. But um, but I got to see, you know, some of the better parts of Europe, uh, with the exception of Rome, uh, which, which I, you know, really regret because the way things are now, I don't see myself ever, uh, getting on a plane again anytime soon or traveling uh, abroad anytime soon. I don't think things are getting easier for that. So. No, I, absolutely. You know, one country I forgot to mention earlier was New Zealand. I, I went to New Zealand in 2005, mainly because I wanted to see all the places where they filmed the Lord of the Rings. And, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the idea of going to New Zealand now, no one ever talks about it, especially if like these incredibly progressive countries, but they, they've had some pretty severe travel restrictions on, uh, on, on tourism you know, themselves. And nobody really likes to talk about that. It's like America, why won't you let everyone in? And it's like, well, New Zealand's not letting everyone in and New Zealand's like, Hey, stick to your own shit. But it's, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, it it used to be the, the way I always saw it growing up, um, you know, in the military family, like travel was part of the job that my father had. So we had to move pretty regularly and, you know, not coming from the the wealthiest of backgrounds for a lot of my friends that would go on these, you know, foreign, you know, trips and everything else. I, I, I've, I've been a big stickler when it comes to like, what's the difference between travel and vacation? And for mm-hmm. a lot of them, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a Beltway snob living right outside of D.C. Like a lot of them, their idea of travel is vacation. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to stay at a resort. I'm going to spend a lot of money and I'm not really going to do much. I might go out and see a few things, but I'm not doing much. Whereas travel, <laughs> I, I've always viewed travel as more of a education experience because it's your opportunity to really immerse yourself in something that is drastically different or in some ways even incrementally different from where you're currently comfortable and it's trying to broaden your, your view of the world. So when I travel, like I stay at cheap hotels, I've slept in my car, I go to the places yep. that are like 30 miles off the highway and stuff like that. And, and what really changed my mind, which is why, why I'm gl- kind of glad that we started with Europe and the, you know, why we'll transition to your trip across the United States. But like my father who grew up in pretty severe poverty in Florida, uh, when he graduated from, from the Citadel in 1992, he went on a trip to Europe because in his father's mind, it was important for my father to become a worldlier person mm-hmm. and for him to realize that this is a big planet and it's not just about you in some cases. And yep. for my dad, that set him up with this mindset and with this, you know, this intrinsic part of him that set him up to constantly want to go explore and be open to things. So it's for reasons like that where some people are like, oh, why would you send your kid to Europe and stuff like that? You know, even like four or five years ago, you know, they should be out working. They should be paying off the debt. It's like, no, this actually might be one of their first real steps into those big adult moments in your life where you really begin to think, wow, there's a lot I don't know. Yep, exactly. And it's little things, too, uh, that you take for granted. And all of a sudden you get like in Europe, for example, um, you know, sparkling water. I hate sparkling water. Um, yeah, everywhere you go, the water was just awful. <laughs> um, and I just wanted my my good old American water. Um, you know, you could get water in a bottle, but no, it was the, the water was nasty. <laughs> well, then they drive on the wrong side of the road. It's like we haven't, you know, they, yeah. they take our sports, they take all these other things, but they didn't take the stuff that's actually useful. Exactly. <laughs> 
you just it's some other things too that that I that I could appreciate is that their news um, over there is actually more broader and it's more uh, worldly than it is here in the United States. Uh, coming coming back to the United States, I, I really suddenly kind of felt a little um, claustrophobic. Uh, and I was curious to know, hey, what was going on in Zimbabwe? Because every news station I went to in uh, Europe was talking about the situation in Zimbabwe and um, some of these other uh, countries in Africa and Asia. And I came to the United States and I don't even know, I can't even tell you what those stories are about because the United States never once uh, followed up on any of those. Um, so you take the good with the bad, but uh, that that was a fascinating experience. Just little things like that. Uh, that definitely broaden your horizons, and you do realize that it's not all about you and your country. You're you're just one country of of many in the world, um, and, and it's interesting. You're definitely one of the greatest countries, uh, and you, you you learn to appreciate that and and why that is. Um, but you still are just one country in one timeline uh, in the entire history of you know human population. Yeah, I mean, my my biggest thing for myself is I hate lacking context when I'm talking about something. Like a habit that actually bugs a lot of people. This is why I'm a terrible panelist when I go on other shows and stuff. Is if you didn't initially prep me on what I'm supposed to talk about, I have this like OCD habit of saying, "Well, I, I don't know about that, so I don't have anything to say," and that that's terrible because then everyone's just like, "Well, what do you mean you don't have anything to say?" Everyone has everything to say about everything, even if they know nothing about it. But like you know, I, I grew up in a in a border town in Arizona where you could basically just spit off your front porch and you'd hit Mexico. <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's like, you know, growing up there, even growing up in Texas, you know, while I never went into Mexico, you have to know what's going on there because what's going to happen in Mexico is going to go ahead and immediately impact what's going on in the border states. Right. It's going to spill over. Yeah. And I mean, growing up as, as, a, as a kid moving around as often as we did, we moved around the United States pretty often, but even just those trips to go to other countries, you know, it, it was one of those broadening experiences where... Um, it, it may, it definitely like yourself, it made me more appreciative of where I'm from, but it also, you know, gave me this, 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 this part of me that, you know, created somewhat of an exploration oriented spirit where it's like, there's just so much out there. I don't know. I need to go ahead and fill as many of those gaps. And, and it really, uh, especially if it's a historical area, it really tie, it really brings to life those things that you just read about. And all of a sudden, they're right in front of you, and it just makes it more real um, that you know these times and places existed at one time. These people were actually here, and when you go to the more of the classic areas too, and you realize you're like, wow, I'm staring at the same things, seeing the same views that people hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago saw. Um, you know, it's like that out west too. You know, you're looking at places that some of the first pioneers, you know, laid their eyes on and some of them look exactly the same. Um, and it's just it, it connects you. It connects you to the past uh, in a more personal way. Um, it, and also, whenever I meet anybody and they say where they're from or, uh, you know, I have some kind of experience, at least being close to that area or at least being definitely within the same state. Um, and so you kind of get connected to pretty much everybody you you can at least say you have something in common with them to an extent um and that's one of the great things about traveling it's why i advocate for people to do it and also to be honest uh, traveling with other people sucks <laughs> oh <laughs> like, man the places i want to go are never where anyone else wants to go it, exactly yeah and you know i hate to say that and i come across as jerk to saying that but um when you're by yourself i mean you you can absorb it to the extent that you want to absorb it. If you want to stay longer, you can stay longer. Uh, you can't do that with other people. You got to negotiate everything. And um, so it becomes more, you know, to your thing about traveling versus uh, vacationing, it becomes more of a vacation when you take other people along with you. Yeah. And I mean, my thing is I, I like, I, I like seeking discomfort to a certain degree. And I think this is something that a lot of people that live in like suburban populations tend to, you know, go away from because this idea of, you know, 
you know, sleeping in your house one night and then having to go out and camp somewhere where the weather is bad and you don't know the area or sleeping in your car, staying at a random motel because you've been driving for 10 hours. Like that idea almost sounds like, why would I subject myself to like this hobo behavior? Somebody literally told me that. They're like, Remso, like, you know, from what you've told me, traveling a few sounds like work because I drive long hours. I eat at gas stations and waffle houses yep. and I don't shave and I will sleep in the most random places. Like it's one of those things where it's like, I want to, you know, if, if, if this makes me homeless, Indiana Jones, then that's, <laughs> that's what I want. Like, I want to experience that because I want to be able to build more of a disconnect between the minds I have when I'm home and when I'm actually out on a mission, because, you know, one of the places that I, I went um, to North Carolina uh, recently, one of the places I went there was this grave site I found on this website from this dude named Peter Stewart Nay not to go on a ramp, but it was like one of the coolest things I've seen and experienced in a long time. Peter Stuart Ney fought with Napoleon in Russia. Uh, when Napoleon was exiled, he went back to France, tried to overthrow the government with another government. And then when Napoleon came back, he overthrew the government of the government he helped overthrow to put Napoleon back. And then when Napoleon finally got kicked out the last time, he ran away in North Carolina, changed his name to Michael Ney, and then what he did was he taught French and on his deathbed, he showed proof and all this other stuff that he was in fact, uh, Peter Ney who fought with Napoleon and his grave is like, you know, they, they buried him in a little plot, but his grave is covered in brick and glass. And it's one of the most pristine graves I've ever seen in my life. Like you go Mount Vernon and you see like the tomb of George and Martha Washington. It is trash compared to this random French dude in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina. <laughs> and the one thing that they don't show on the website is the fact that some mystery person comes and lays flowers at his gravesite regularly. And I got there, I think, within a day of somebody putting a fresh bouquet of flowers as gravesite. So it was like oh. joining this mystery of who is visiting this guy. They don't know. No, because his grave is in the middle of freaking nowhere. And he's just one of these random people in history who's tied to a crazy event halfway across the world and now i'm standing just staring at his tombstone but it was one of the craziest things i can describe recently especially when no one's going out and doing anything what i could not have him? done that he, he was from france wow yeah like that is something that no one else would want to do with me but it was like you <laughs> know i've got this opportunity i'll go do it myself i i would totally do that if I was down in North Carolina, I would I would totally go that. Speaking, this is a little off topic. Anastasia Romanoff, did you hear the rumors about her being alive? I talked to one guy who insists that he knew her. She uh, she apparently, according to like some of the theories, like she came to the United States, right? Yeah, in Charlottesville. What? Yeah, that, I think that was one of the <clears throat> one of the rumored uh, places that she uh, resided in was in Charlottesville. No. Yeah. I don't have anything in front of me to pull that up, but this old guy that I used to talk to, he insisted that, yeah, that she resided in Charlottesville and everybody knew that back in like, you know, the fifties or whatever that, oh yeah, she's, she's alive. She's here. <laughs> like That is crazy. Um, I don't think that of course they ever proved that. And there was some documentary on some woman that claimed to be her for <clears throat> like decades. And they actually ended up disproving her with, um, you know, some type of uh, DNA um, testing technology or whatever. And yeah, so a little off topic, but, you know, in terms of refugees fleeing to, to the United States who are like kind of famous, um, that that was always a story that kind of captivated me. I don't know where the gravesite is, but... Man, Virginia um, leads the way in that case. Oh, yeah. Everyone <laughs> from Virginia. <laughs> But, uh, but, but anyway, so you, you come back from Europe, um, between when you came back and when you decided to go on this giant cross country trip, you know, how, how long was that? And as you were planning, it was the original goal always to visit all 48 States in the continental United States, or was it, I'm going to start here and I'll try and figure it out later. And oh, I guess I might as well visit the next couple. And now I might as well just keep going. What was the, what was the mindset yeah. for that? Um, so the mindset really, you know, started when the Europeans were asking me about places, of course. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I've never been to New York. I don't know. 
And I thought that there was something wrong with that. And I was like, okay, I've been to Europe, but I haven't really been in my backyard. And I felt like that was wrong. <laughs> like I, I want to explore my country. I, I want to see what my country is all about. Um, and it was really as simple as that. And in terms of like the timing, you know, I was, uh, doing the job I was doing for several years and, um, you know, I was young. I, I didn't have a family. I felt like if I didn't do this now, you know, I, I I'm young. I have time to recover financially. I was like, this is going to, you know, is, I mean, I, I did it pretty economically. I mean, it, it definitely <clears throat> cost over 10 grand, but, uh, really that's pretty cheap in the grand scheme of things. Um, and I was like, I'm young, I can recover from this bounce on my feet. No problem. But this opportunity to, to do this and the desire to do this, I don't know what can happen tomorrow. You know, who knows? So if I got the desire to do this and I've got the opportunity to do it, I need to take, take a chance and do it. At the time I thought I was going to go to law school. So I was kind of like, well, let me do this trip and then I'll go to law school and do that for three years. And I'm going to be studying, you know, for the next three years and not going to have a life really. So uh, let me get this, it, you know, when you, you travel, you get this travel bug and it's hard to shake it. And so I still had the travel bug from Europe uh, for several, several years after. And uh, so I, I, at the time I was a little bit of a, an extreme person. I was kind of all or nothing. So I wasn't just going to say, oh, well, maybe I'll do a couple of states, you know, this week and then next year I'll visit a couple more states. No, I was, I, I've, I've never been that kind of person. I was like, I'm going to go all out. I'm going to see every state. If I'm going to go all the way out to California, I might as well go to Nevada. I might as well go to Idaho if I'm going to be out that far. Um, I didn't really like flying a whole lot, but it, to do a trip like this, it had to be driving. I mean, there's just no way around it. It had to drive it. And I wanted to see it from my window too. When you're in a plane, you don't really get to see um, the landscape of everything too. And I really just wanted to see the landscape. And Well, I mean, um, the thing with driving, I think a lot of people, it has kind of like this negative connotation because it's like, oh, I don't want to drive all that distance. But it's like, the, the journey is like a majority of the fun you're going to have because you get to see yeah. things that you'll never have really thought you were going to encounter. And, you know, the thing is I like to stop. Like if I, if I have a destination in mind, but I see something really cool on the side of the road, I I just go ahead and, you know, take the exit and I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll I'll get back on the main course later. And that's another reason why I like to travel solo because it's like, Oh, if there's a detour I want to take, I can just take it. Yeah. And I did a couple of those too. And, and you got, you have that freedom. And the first one I did that was like that was Davy Crockett's, uh, childhood home. Um, I guess it was his childhood home or it was his, uh, the home that he built or something like that. But it was in Tennessee. It was in East Tennessee and didn't even expect that it was going to be right off the exit, uh, that, or the interstate that I was on. And sure enough, there's a sign up Davy, Davy Crockett's home. And, uh, I'm like, Hey, I'm on this trip. I'm doing this. Let's, let's go check it out. You know, Davy Crockett was a hero of mine when I was a kid. And, And part of that trip was about satisfying a lot of those, you know, those, those childhood, um, curiosities and, you know, uh, and like wanting to see, you know, places of my favorite poets or my favorite actors or, um, or, or just historic figures who are heroes of mine. I just wanted to, you know, be in the locations that they were in. Um, and there's something spiritual about it. And so that was really satisfying getting to, to do that. But that was my first, uh, kind of off the beaten path trip or, you know, um, off the beaten path spot was David Crockett's, uh, uh, home. And, uh, so in, in terms of how I planned it, I started going South, um, went all the way down to Florida. Then I kind of went back up into Ch- Tennessee again, Memphis and Nashville area. And then I cut into Missouri and then I kind of came back down again, down through Oklahoma where I got stuck in a dust storm, uh, into Texas. And then started going west to New Mexico and Arizona. And uh, I'm trying to think now, I think I went up north again to Colorado and then cut west into Nevada. And then I went into California. And then I went, I I got pausing right here as a, as a native of Arizona. How, what, what were your impressions of the state as you were driving through it? Because when I mentioned the people I'm from Arizona and if they've been there, their, their first reaction is like, man, it's like freaking Mars. It's the yeah, weirdest state in the country. It, it's like um, 
it's like a cult uh hippies meaning <laughs> uh cowboy westerners and then you got Arizona in the nutshell. <laughs> they just like to be left alone, smoking their peyote and loading their yeah. guns. That they yep. just want to be left alone. Uh, throwing some Navajos in there, and yeah, it, it's a uh, it's that, that's Arizona in a nutshell. Um, that's basically I, it. <laughs> Sedona was <laughs> Sedona was really cool. I liked Sedona a lot, um, and that was actually one of the aspects of. I mean, there are so many aspects of that trip that I was trying to absorb and one of it was the spirituality aspect of every state and some of the places i went to you, you had there were weird spiritual vibes to them and i can name exactly which states and which locations had the strangest spiritual and, and you're into the, the paranormal stuff i saw your website on you know some of the ghost hunting and stuff hey, everyone that needs a hobby right oh yeah and that's a great <laughs> that's an excellent hobby to have i mean that that's a blast and um I wasn't purposefully seeking that out, but it was just something that I noticed when I was traveling. But Charleston, South Carolina, uh, New Orleans, the whole state of Colorado, um, Sedona, Arizona, um, and I think there may have been one more, but they had the strangest spiritual vibes that, in my opinion, I've ever experienced. And I, I couldn't really explain it, couldn't really put it into words, but it was there. And you just kind of felt it. So I don't know if you've been to Sedona or not when you're when you live there, but so Sedona is one of those places that feels like it's it's part physical and it's part metaphysical in a way, because as you're looking at the landscape and as you're you're walking around taking in the environment, it, it's almost hitting you in a way where you really begin to question, like you know, you, you begin to question, like you know, fr from from a Christian view wow, God made this in this way and he did it with so much intention. And then even if you come at it from a secular perspective, it's like what chain of events in the history of existence led to this exact place right here? Because you really yeah. begin to question it. And that's why I really feel bad for people that don't feel this need to go out and explore as much of the United States as possible. Because much like you, mm -hmm. I was always one of those people where it's like, I want to be able to at least know a little bit more of my country. But yep. like we are, we're a weird country. It's very and I, weird. And, and I say that <laughs> in the most loving way possible, but you go from one place to another. And while people might be the same in terms of the context of, you know, who they are, where they are, that type of thing, like very culturally, they're just so different. And I don't think you've ever had a point in human history where you've had such a big swath of land with so many people from so many different places who have settled in different parts over time and the way they live, you know, small differences become very obvious. It's like traveling up North. Um, I will never live like in, in certain States. Like I will never want to live in like Delaware, New Hampshire, New Jersey, or New York. And they're just, they're just so different. They might as well be other countries. Not that, you know, I, I think that there's anything inherently wrong about them culturally. It's just that it doesn't suit me. But that's the great thing about it, because there's a different place for everybody. It's there. And that those differences are definitely there. And they're subtle. But it, the first time I've ever been called an Easterner, I think that was how they, they put it. Oh, you must be an East Coaster. And I, what? How, how did you know? Uh, it was just for how fast that I talked. Because people out West, they just don't talk that fast apparently <laughs> oh dude I, I got that when i was from when i was in alabama for two years <laughs> yeah like, like you would have thought that you know i i just jumped out of union station and i was doing an auction <laughs> the, the way they put it but i mean that, that's one of those other things where it's like as we as we go through like difficult times through pandemics and wars and stuff like that, there's usually this giant push for everyone to just, you know, get on the same message, get on the same mindset, you know, whether it's unifying for the right purposes or just becoming centralized for the wrong purposes. I, I think we need to remember that, you know, we're, we're different states and we're different local governments for a very good reason. It's because otherwise we could probably go our entire lives and never see a reason to associate with each other. Yeah. And my biggest takeaway, and I even said this several years ago before the 2016 election is that this is a huge country and it's bigger than one person. 
And when I was out there and I was seeing, you know, all these things that were happening in so many different places, all, you know, all over the place, and it's just a massive piece of country. No government can really destroy it. I mean, there's so much activity happening. There's so many people doing good things out there. Um, it, it's so much bigger than one person or even, you know, one national government. I mean, there's just, there's so much happening. Um, and so I tried to use that as a way to calm people down. Like, Hey, if it's Trump, it's going to be fine. <laughs> if it's Hillary, it's going to be fine. These people don't have the power to totally destroy the foundation of this country because it's still there. Um, it was encouraging for me, uh, just to see that and see how many great things are happening simultaneously every single day. And, and, on this piece of land. Yeah. And I mean, the, the other thing is like, I, I try not to bash other States. Like I make fun of California. I make fun of New York. Like I'll never stop making fun of them. But the last <laughs> thing I ever want to do is start, is start telling them how they, how they need to live their life. Cause if you want to destroy your own state through one way or another, man, that's all up to you. Just leave me out of it. But like during the summer, um, you know, the first solo road trip I ever went on was last year. It was during the riots and during the, the worst parts of COVID. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to die one way or another, I, I need to go and do some traveling because I've got this paid time <laughs> off from work I need to take. And, um, you know, the, the one thing I did do because I was also broke, I got salary cut. You know, everyone in the newsroom got salary cut when I was at the Washington Times that year. Um, but like I, I was like, you know, I've got a car. I've got some cash. I've got time off. I'm going to go ahead and visit every town in Virginia. And for a lot of people, they're just like, dude, that sounds like the most boring ass trip ever <laughs> because you've lived here for like 10 years. Like, what else are you going to see? And the thing I realized traveling for like seven days was like, there's a lot that I'll, I, I never would have seen prior. But the thing that really caught me was this was, and not, not to get too in the weeds of this, but like this is during the whole Confederate monument debacle. Mm-hmm. But I realized even having one gone to a school that, you know, what was part of the, you know, part of the Confederacy during the Civil War. I went to Marion Military Institute in Alabama, having lived primarily in the South my entire life and visiting, you know, battlefields and stuff. I had never actually taken the time to actually go up and read what was on some of those memorials. And I was mm-hmm. in the, I was in the stance of, it has really nothing to do with me. I don't really care. Let, let these towns figure out what they want to do. But I drove and I visited a ton of those monuments, mainly because I thought Antifa was going to like tear them all down. So I was like, hey, might as well see it before the Taliban comes. And, um, you know, I, I actually went and read a lot of those, uh, you know, the, the inscriptions on those monuments. And the thing that caught me was the names. And in Virginia, especially the farther south you go, the list of names becomes longer and longer and longer. And then what really hit me was like, oh, my God, within a couple of years, entire towns worth of men were just gone. Wiped out. Yep. And you want to talk about like, you know, uh, generational pain and, you know, inherited uh, depression and stuff like that. Like, you know, what some of the social justice buzzwords are like, I get it to a degree now. So it's like with some of the people on the left, they're talking about like, you know, generational anxiety and stuff like that in terms of racial terms. I began to see it from more, more cultural terms. So it's like, you know, I kind of get where you're coming from. But using the same logic, you have to understand where a lot of these people are coming from. And you can't just wipe out thousands of men who all came from the same place within a year and then expect those places to recover within a couple of generations. So it was one of those situations where I began to develop a lot of nuance. And it's like, listen, man, I think building Confederate monuments in West Virginia is fucking weird. Take that down, put up Mothman if you want. But for a lot of these things, it has nothing to do with like, you know, building up the reputation of the lost cause and stuff like that. It's literally just a memorial to men who died. Yeah. And their descendants, I mean, are in the millions in the South um, of people who have stories. Um, I have a story of a great grand, great, great grandfather who, you know, escaped from a union prison and the guys he escaped with all got caught. He didn't. He was the only one that didn't get caught. It, it was a uh, Lifetime magazine article. And I wish I could find it. I don't know how to find it because um, I don't know the issue. But um, but this was a, a family story that was passed down about this, too. And he was the only one that survived. And, you know, how many people are here because he happened to get away? You know, those That's stories crazy. stick with you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the things I got to see, like I had a couple of things on my list I wanted to check out. One of them, I didn't realize I was hitting up your neck of the woods in, in Mechanicsville. It's the ghost church. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the poly green uh, yep. Episcopal church. That is one of the coolest places in the entire Commonwealth. I don't know yep. why it doesn't get more attention. Yeah, it's very tucked away and yeah, very subtle. Like I had to, like I thought I was lost at one point, and and basically, okay. people listening to this, it was a side of of a church that was part of the broader, um, you know, Anglican movement in in the colonies at the time, and it's where Patrick Henry went as a kid, and the and the church burned down like in the in the seventeen fifties or something like that. But what what you have in its place to mark its historical significance for you know, revolutionary America and, you know, the broadening of Christianity in the colonies was they put up these giant white pillars and, you know, outlines of the church that stand out in the middle of nowhere. And that's just one of those places where it's like, unless you have really done a lot of digging, you're never going to see it there because it's not a big tourist trap or anything. But right. stuff like that, that really gave me a lot of nuance to understanding, like, we're, we're standing on the rubble of history, and it's not good enough just to read it in a book or go to a museum. Sometimes you've got to do the journey of getting there and actually standing on the ground to really let it sink in in a spiritual way. Yeah, definitely. Um, th- there's, uh, you know, you were talking about esoteric, not to get too esoteric, but there's uh, certain energies in certain part places uh, that you, you can just feel it and uh, you can't really put words to it. Man, I, I, I talk about travel in in a spiritual sense and that sometimes kind of kind of weirds people out. But like you see this this theme across different religions, like, for example, in, in Buddhism, they don't have a concept of sin necessarily. Sin is mainly when you're doing something out of greed. Greed leads to destruction. The, the whole chain of events goes down from there. Like, you know, in, in Buddhism, they say go on long hikes through nature because it cleanses your minds of sin. And what is it really saying? It's go walk through nature, clear your mind, clear your head, get into a neutral emotional state. And, and I think travel does that, especially when you're going somewhere to go to a certain destination to see something or to experience something you're attaching a part of yourself that I think gets numbed down when you're doing the basic nine to five or just gets completely dulled when you've really tried to quiet that part of you because life gets loud. You, we've got responsibilities, we've got challenges, we've got things we have to do. And I think that's why a lot of people get depressed. That's why a lot of people get angry sometimes because we've stopped the motion of life going forward because we're just doing things because we have to, and not because we necessarily want to. What you said, uh, is exactly how I felt when I was traveling. I, I kind of remember thinking this to myself that if all hell breaks loose and at some point in my life, everything falls apart, it was encouraging to know that the open highway is always there. If I ever need it again, it's always there. And, you know, knowing that I can do it for dirt cheap. Um, if, if I ever have the need to do it or have to do it, I can just get a RV and, you know, do it again. And, uh, you know, and, and just knowing that that experience still awaits if, you know, God forbid, you know, worst case scenario, there was nothing here for me in Virginia. The open road is always there. Um, and I was like, you know, it's it's not too bad if I was if I was ever really lost. But um, that that's just how amazing it is to experience that. Um, and yes. I mean, speaking of which, I mean, you hit on a big thing, like a lot has changed, not just in, you know, the, the decade that's passed, but even in the past years, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, like the concept of travel, you know, you say that and you might as well tell somebody you're going to go ahead and slap their mama. Um, you know, wh- what, do you, what do you say to people right now who are like, damn, I really wish I could have gone because I'm telling them just freaking go, just get in the car and go. And, you know, follow all the guidelines that you have to do to be polite and just do your own thing. Because it's like, if you're not going to do it ever, you, then, you know, that that's not that's not a type of life I think anybody wants to live. Yeah. I The only thing that would weird me out now, I think, would be all the hotels and motels. I mean, I stayed in some pretty crappy motels, to be honest, uh, that I would never stay in again uh, at my age. <laughs> <laughs> I, the one was called the... The Cowboy Inn and, and uh, oh gosh, Alam, what's that place called? 
Almarillo, uh, Amarillo, Amarillo, yeah, Amarillo Texas. in Texas. And it was, it, it had a hole in the door and, um, there were some fights going on right outside. It was, I, I slept with my gun right next to me and dumb me. I ended up like packing my stuff up, getting out of there first thing in the morning, left my gun. Oh, um, and of course it's, it's run by, um, you know, some guy who hadn't been in the country very long. And so he didn't really know, um, a lot of our laws. I had a concealed carry, but, um, he ended up calling the authorities, uh, about it. So I had to call the authorities and explain, Hey, you know, I was, this is a sketchy area. I had to be honest with them. So I had it next <laughs> to me. I'm traveling. I just forgot it. You know, everything worked out. Okay. It was fine. But, um, I forget, I, I went on that tangent, but we were talking about, you know, safety precautions and people doing it now in COVID. I mean, most of the best places in the United States are outside. Um, so if you're outside, you know, getting out that that's the best experience you can possibly have anyway. Um, so I don't see any reason why, and, and if someone has an RV or anything like that, then, then that takes care of that problem right there. But the, the biggest thing I run into in conversations with people is they always say, well, I'm going to do that when I retire. I think that's the biggest mistake that anybody can make because you're looking at 25, 30 years, possibly down the road, a lot could happen in there and you could, you know, God forbid, get in a car accident and be paralyzed, not have that opportunity. Um, you, you just don't know what could happen. You could have, you know, a, a failing heart condition. And so you can't really sit in a car for too long. Best time to do it is when you're young, when you can actually drive for 14 hours across, you know, the plains of Texas, um, you know, and when you don't have responsibilities and you don't have a lot of concerns, that's the best time to do it. And I think a lot of people get trapped into thinking, well, that's a retirement thing. No, that's, you know, that. Who knows? And and we saw in the past year how quickly the world can change. Um, if you're looking at going across seas and you're thinking, well, that's something I'll do when I retire. Well, now, you know, possibility we're looking at of COVID passports and, um, you know, uh, COVID vaccine passports and, and stuff like that. And um, you don't know what kind of stuff we're going to have in the future that are going to be similar to that, that you're not going to be able to do. Oh, I mean, um, the, the one thing I don't think anyone ever considers is that the shit you want to see and you're thinking, oh, I'll, I'll wait like 20, 30 years for that. That might not even be here. One of the things that like yeah. still bothers me to this day is that I'll never be able to go and see the uh, Notre Dame in Paris yeah, in, the, that. Yeah. in the way it was supposed to be. Because, yeah, it's going to be you know, they're going to be able to open it up again one day. Maybe if they're lucky, they'll be able to hold mass there because, you know, mass numbers have been going down for French Catholics, but like, it will never be the same. And, and I see, you know, when that happened in 20, uh, 2019, we're seeing photos of my friends that went to Europe and stuff, and they're taking photos of, you know, themselves of the inside of Notre Dame and everything. And it's like, I'm never going to have that experience, even if I get there. Yeah, that's right. And that's that I was thinking of the same thing when you mentioned it. How many things are are no not there or things you can't really get access to because of terrorist attacks? And um, you know, I don't even know, can people even go in the Eiffel Tower anymore? I don't I don't I don't oh, know. They, they can, they've but. they've closed that down for a while. Ever since like the the, the Bataclan shootings, uh terrorist right. attack in 20, 20 I don't remember if it was twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. They, they've shut that shit down. But I mean, that, those are just the big things. I mean, the thing that bothered me and it, it took me having to just drive like four hours south of Fairfax to really realize this is like, there's a lot of stuff like even in Virginia, even in our own state that is disappearing. Like we have a rise of like slowly uh, abandoned cities going on, um, you know, in, in and around even like the Lynchburg region right there. The, the one thing that, you know, kind of caught me was when I was uh, at, at Natural Bridge, I was driving down to Lexington and there's this one restaurant called the Pink Cadillac Diner. And mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's a uh, you know, it's an Elvis themed diner. It's on a whole bunch of like obscure travel uh, guides when you're looking around Virginia. And I was like one of their first customers in like days. Mm. And it was awkward and people like were, they were really excited to see me, but it was also like, Oh, well, what are you doing here? And right okay. next door to it was this auto body shop that apparently had just closed down. And when you look at the display window, it showed a, it showed a sign that was like for sale. And then in cardboard and big, bright, you know, Sharpie, it said, I tried. 
And it's just like, you know, they, they were telling me how that guy left and that guy would come in every day. And when they stopped seeing him, they got really worried. And now, you know, you have one of this, one of these little, just interesting spots that add a little bit of character to an area and they don't know if they're going to be able to stay in business another year. That that's, I know that's entirely COVID related too, because I've definitely been out there several times and, you know, it was always, um, I, I can't remember if it was hopping or not, but it was definitely, you know, people there. They, they could pay the bills. Now they don't see people yeah. regularly. Right. Yeah. And the little and hotel attached thing. to it looks like the dead hooker in. I would never stay there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of like the cowboy, ho- uh, the cowboy in, uh, very much. So. <laughs> I feel like that's that's like a character building moment. It shows where you're willing to, you know, rest for the night and hope that no one's going to break oh. in and kill you. Oh, Remzo, get this. It's even better. The Cowboy Inn that I say that it was actually a neon cowboy that waved. It was the most cliche, terrible. So Texas. That is so Texas. Had a waving <laughs> neon cowboy. I kid you not. Uh, it was the most cliche, uh, rundown motel of of all time. Um, you had mentioned something uh, that it got me thinking about some other aspects of that trip that I went on that are relevant to today in the in terms of you know wow I'm so glad I did it <clears throat> and you and you talked about it earlier which was statues and I saw so many statues so many monuments to people I'd never even heard of in my entire life um, all over the place and some of them were local heroes you know some of them were region state heroes. Um, and looking back on that now, I didn't realize how special that was, considering now with so much of that happening with you know what I consider to be iconoclasmic activity and taking down statues and everything, because you know I, I, you just take it for granted. But the thing that I had, I guess, against statues in general <clears throat> was just the the mere fact of how um, pointless it seemed in, in terms of why you know these statues are going to wear down eventually in time. And it reminded me of a um, poem and I put it in my blog, um, Ozymandias, um, which was the, the poem about the, uh, um, the Egyptian Phoenix and uh, how it's just been uh, covered in sand. Uh, you know, and at one point it stood as this great, you know, um, uh, monument to the civil to the Egyptian civilization. Now it's buried under sand. And so it, it kind of put me in a, uh, I guess, a nihilistic state of mind, I guess, or, or an existential state of mind that um, it seems like doing things for the sake of getting prestige is extremely pointless because at the end of the day, all you're really getting is a statue with a bird that poops on your head every day and nobody even knows who you are. Um, so, you know, kind of a, a little depressing outlook. But when you see so many statues after a while, they all kind of just run together. And this guy looks no different than this other guy. Um, but in, in hindsight, you know, they seem more special to me now because the opposite of that and just taking them down for uh, whatever flimsical reason seems almost worse in some ways. But yeah, and I mean, I almost think it's like a, a habit that, our, our generation is not going to have, like, I don't see generations after us seeing the need to put up statues. That's and right. I think it's just one of those things where, you know, I still like to go see them when I travel because there's, oh, there, ha- my thing is if you're going to put the time and the effort and the money to do this, there has to have been a reason. And one of the things that I wanted to see, I went to Indiana in, uh, in January, I, I got to see a bust of James Dean's head in yeah. the town that James Dean is from. And I saw on a couple of websites. I'm like, Hey, I want to take a photo next to James Dean. It, just like, you know, visiting that grave site where it's like, I got to see, you know, the flowers down. It's like, I could have never seen that or known that or experienced that unless I went there. Um, the plaque uh, at uh, James Dean's uh, statue, which is acts as his memorial. Um, I, I got to read the plaque and on all my research, nobody ever talked about the plaque and to paraphrase the plaque is like, you know, this is not a monument to James Dean. who was like the bad boy, the outlaw that he was in movies. This is a statue to James Dean, 
the man, an all-American classic, who was a varsity athlete, who was an incredibly educated and intellectual, you know, powerhouse student in his local high school. He won academic decathlons. This is the James Dean that really embodied a, an era of America where individualism and entrepreneurship were were really celebrated. And he came from this small town and impacted the world of cinema forever. This is to that James Dean. And getting to just stand there in this small town where no one was visiting because of COVID and everything else, just kind of standing there. It's like, wow, like this town gave him this small statue. And it's a small statue because they genuinely loved him. Yeah. And it's things like that. It's like that extra layer of context where it's like everything else is justified. Yeah. And it gives these small towns just a a little extra uniqueness to them, too. Hey, we're the town that raised James Dean or Jimmy Stewart or something like that. Otherwise, you know, you would have never heard of them and no one would have had a reason to stop. Oh, I, I went to I went to a town called Mount Airy in North Carolina, and that's where uh, Andy Griffith was born. Oh, and yeah. They, yeah. And they and they took a lot of the set pieces from the town of Mayberry from the Andy Griffith show and they had them in town. I went to go see it, but the town was like freaking dead. Like I saw a bunch of teenagers <laughs> hanging out in like the carcass of a abandoned sonics like the the freaking mcdonald's had like a for a lease sign on there and i'm just driving around I'm like what the hell is this town doing and they have a statue for andy griffith and uh you know it's it's this giant golden statue in the middle of this town that looks like something out of like you know children of the corn and i'm just like what the what the hell am i doing here and then like you know yeah, like they like it was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's like it bad. was just that, and I I got out of that town immediately after that. But that was another one of those moments where it's like, you know, the I think the plaque matters. And after doing the Virginia trip, now I I I really I really make an effort to go read the plaques. But you know, I remember Andy Griffith specifically because it was like a you know a simpler time, a sweeter place, a lesson, a laugh, a father and a son. And that's just one of those things where it's like, wow, it's like, if this town disappears, will anyone even care about the statue? And I I don't have an answer for that, but it's one of those things where it's definitely like, you know, leave leave a legacy where you don't need one to be remembered. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, people will remember Andy Griffith, not because of even the, you know, necessarily, of course the show will obviously be one of the reasons, but it's like, if the town disappears and if they took the statue down, Andy Griffith will still be remembered as the philanthropist, the humanitarian, the actor, you know, this big American cultural figure. He didn't need the statue. That's right. Yeah. But man, yeah. We, we've covered, we've covered a ton of stuff the past hour. Um, we, we could probably go on for another three, but I, I've got to let you go. You know, what, what's some of your advice for people looking around now and they're just itching to get out and they don't know where to go, but they know they've just got to go somewhere right now. I think uh, the best thing to do is get on the road and just let kind of let the winds take you where wherever, like just, just hop on the road. And then all of a sudden you'll start seeing places and it'll start sparking that curiosity. And you'll be like, I wonder, I wonder what happens if I keep going South or I wonder what happens if I get off this exit and uh, go towards this, you know, historic, mo- you know, marker or something. I'm curious to see what this is. I think, and no one really has a plan already set out. Uh, just getting on the road alone will, I think, open you up. Um, and just being on the road for several hours, and all of a sudden you'll find your place in a yourself in a place that you never would have would have been. I I met a guy who was in Mississippi who uh, cut my hair. I, I went to a barber shop in Mississippi and. They had my last name, Hensley. So I was like, well, let me stop in here. That's pretty cool. (laughs) And the guy that cut my hair had never been across the Mississippi border in his his entire life. Um, And he was probably mid, late 40s, maybe. And here I was, this 25-year-old. And I had literally just the day before had gotten back from somewhere further than where he had ever been in his entire life. Um, And, you know, who am I? to have that that special privilege it really is a privilege but it's open to everybody um if you're willing to spend a little bit of gas money if you have that um then, then take advantage of it i mean that one of the things that taught me was this country is here for us we've inherited this country it's ours you know any location is your location you can go anywhere and feel welcome there um 
And so, you know, don't take that for granted and don't take your life for granted and, and, you know, and make it happen sooner than later. Don't say I'll do it tomorrow. Um, everyone has a free weekend. Just take a free weekend and drive six hours and go somewhere you've never been before. And then you'll be back Sunday before dinner time. you know, uh, it'll be like you almost never went. So, but you'll be changed in, in, in a small way. So, um, I think people just gotta, just gotta do it. Man, there, there's this quote, I forgot where I heard it from, but it's totally not mine, but it's, uh, uh, misadventure is better than misadventure. Yep. And and some of the, and some of the best moments I've had traveling came from like the most random moments that no one could have ever planned. It was almost like, you know, destiny was waiting for these odd, crazy, kooky things to happen, but I would, I would never change. I would never exchange them for anything else in the world. Yep. And it's out there for the taking. It's just waiting on you to reach out and get it. Absolutely. Uh, man, we, we've got to have you back on and talk more about this stuff. Again, I, I always enjoy catching up with you and everything. If people want to go ahead and connect with you online, people want to go ahead and check out your book, which I'm going to go ahead and leave uh, the link to in the show notes so people can go ahead and pick that up. How could they do so? Sure. Uh, yeah, I would. Um, I don't know if, if the website's still up. It still might be, but uh, you know, the book being two years old, um, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I still got the website, but they can go to the uh, Facebook page, uh, Richard Obenchain, A Spirit of Fire. Uh, it's about a U.S. Senate candidate in uh, Virginia from the 1970s, um, and it's a uh, uh, pretty dramatic story. Uh, he was the Reagan of the East Coast. Uh, the it, Reagan it reads. The- it literally reads like a movie. Oh, thank you. That's I what I love about that. it. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I was I was hoping that's that's what I was going for with it. So I'm glad that uh, that that came across that way. Definitely. Well, Joel, man, I had a blast. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks, Renzo. Appreciate it. And uh, you enjoy your your travels this weekend. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you as well. Bye. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Like the Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends. 